Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Performing Arts, a podcast from the New Books Network. I'm Andy Boyd. I'm speaking today with Manuel Betancourt, author of Judy at Carnegie Hall, part of the 33 and a Third series from Bloomsbury. Uh, Manuel, welcome to the program. Hi, thank you for having me. Yeah, sure. Um, I really enjoyed the book. It's it's a very fun, uh, deep dive into an album that is uh, very dear to me. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about uh, how you became interested in in Judy Garland and and maybe in particular this this uh, crowning achievement of an album? Of course, um, I will. I, I always have to preface this by saying that I'm probably not as a fanatic of Judy as people would initially believe I am, considering that I spent sort of a significant amount of time writing about her. Um, but the the way that I found myself towards and to, to write about this as you as you know this sort of a crowning achievement sort of iconic album that uh you know became sort of a flashpoint for so many uh gay men in particular um was through my work on fandom um i was working in grad school and a dissertation about uh, queer fandom uh you know looking at various different queer writers who had sort of an affinity for cinema including, you know, Tennessee Williams and Gore Vidal and Manuel Puig. Um, and of course, you can't really talk about queer fandom without talking about, you know, Judy's fans. Um, and so part of my introduction to this project talked a little bit about Judy's, uh, one of Judy's earliest performances um, as a fan uh, when she sings, You Made Me Love You, I Didn't Want to Do It, to a picture of Clark Gable. Um and so that's sort of how I began to be interested in this idea of, of Judy as a way to talk about queer fandom. I know, of course, I grew up with Wizard of Oz. Um, as any self-respecting gay man, I had seen A Star is Born. I'd seen, you know, Meet Me in St. Louis. Um, but my knowledge of, of Judy was sort of very, um, very cursory. Um, it wasn't until I sort of started to think about, you know, if I wanted to write an entire book on an album, which is exactly what you do for 33 and a third, what album would make sense? And the, the one that kept coming back to me was, was Judy at Carnegie Hall, because it seemed a, a way to think about all these things that I'd been thinking about in my academic sort of career and in my academic research, uh, and sort of get a taste and sort of see, you know, why is it that this album so resonates? And of course, I came out of the other side, uh, a full-blown sort of Judy fan. You know, I, I watched everything that I could get my hands on. I read everything that I could. Of course, there's plenty of things that I obviously couldn't get to just because of time. And you could really spend years and years and years, as people have, um, sort of consuming everything Judy. Um, but that was sort of how, how, the, how the project began from that little nugget in my in my dissertation and then wanting to sort of flesh it out. Because uh, I think as much as the, the book is about the album, um, I've, I w- what I was really fascinated was its legacy and the way 
that Judy's fandom has sort of changed and morphed over the decades. And the way that we've talked about her fans has also changed and morphed over the decades and sort of tracking it through the Carnegie Hall concert and the Carnegie Hall recording um, was sort of a, a perfect way to do that. It's almost like in your book, you almost give like a sort of shadow history of gay America through Judy Garland in the way that like, you know, it starts out with the the, the fandom aspect in the 50s and 60s. And then in the 70s, there's this proliferation of kind of drag performances of Judy Garland. And then in the in the 80s and 90s, people start to be sort of ashamed or I guess that even happens earlier. But people start to be sort of like ashamed of the association with Judy Garland, as which you can kind of read as like part of the kind of a. Uh, you know, move towards the whatever the mainstream could be imagined as, and now and now it seems like there's sort of a a renewed love of Judy Garland, a kind of celebration of Judy Garland as as a kind of gay icon. Yeah, and I I think that that was fascinating to track because even those conversations about like Judy always already feeling like an old fashioned sort of gay attachment was there in the '60s, was that? But as you say, like it sort of gains traction sort of in the 70s and 80s and into the 90s but it it continually gets recirculated so that every time right now whenever you talk about judy you need to say well you know she belonged to an older time and you know it's older gays but when you're saying that every 10 years those older gays right. are like are, are different older gays right like they're different generations but it continually gets rewritten in the same way and there's always the sense of like a rediscovery that always needs to come with some sort of caveat or disclaimer about like, well, you know, we understand that we're past divas, of course, but we need them or we want them. And yeah. sort of that, that, that tension, I think runs through sort of uh, like I say, like gay America throughout the 20th century and into the 21st century. Um, and yeah, tracking that was very fun. So actually going back to reading, you know, pieces that were written about Judy in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s and the 70s and seeing both how they kept saying the same things, but also kept rewriting her history in different ways that fit like the new new advancements in terms, in terms of gay rights or in terms of representation or visibility and how she gets refracted for newer and newer generations. And I think we are, um, you know, right now, last year we had right, like a Showtime documentary and we have the Judy... Um, filmer with Renee Zellweger mm-hmm. and we had sort of Gaga Stars Born that sort of required everyone to then rewatch the Garland version like there is a, a sense of a renaissance of like a trying to we're all revisiting Judy and you know we're, we're prepping now for you know it was 50 years since she passed and you know we're gearing up next year for what'll be like 50 years since the Carnegie Hall concert so I think we're going to continue seeing sort of Judy uh, reclaim you know her 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 part in the the sort of like pantheon of pop culture um, that she really inhabited back then and that she, she deserves to continue to inhabit. And I think I'm, I'm, as I myself found myself revisiting her and sort of realizing like, Oh, you know, I, I, I may have tossed her aside or I may have like thought of her very, not, not too much, but the more I read about her, the more in awe of her I became and all the people that she spoke to and spoke about um, so I'm very glad that she's being constantly reclaimed and constantly uh, distanced in, in, in equal measure. Yeah. I thought about asking like a, a pretty straightforward question of like, why do gay men so love Judy Garland? But then I thought like an equally valid question would be like, why don't straight people get Judy Garland? Um, do you want to answer either of those questions? 
I I mean, I, in my head, they're sort of related, obviously. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think the the way that, and again, this is not me, the first person saying it, because every, everyone's been saying it for decades, but like, I think Judy's ability to project strength while also embodying vulnerability has always felt very seductive to gay men. And I think this is why gay men uh, writ large, right? Again, this is a generalization, not hashtag, sure. not all gay men. Um, yeah. The fact, the, the, the reason we gravitate to, towards these divas is that they give us templates for how to turn pain into strength or how to harness resilience uh, whenever you've been heartbroken or whenever you've been you know, disregarded or discarded. Um, and I think Judy was sort of the epitome of this, both in her personal life, but also in, in her films. And I think A Star is Born is sort of a, a perfect example. You know, these like, tor- the, the man uh, that got away, it's such a perfect torch song of like, you know, I may have been beaten and he may have left me, but you know, I'm still here and I'm still singing and I'm still glamorous and I look beautiful and look at what my talent can then uh, bring into motion. I think that's very very seductive and I think very healing for a lot of gay men. And I think it was in 1960s and it continues to be in 2020. Um, And I think a lot of gay men have written about this because you really, when you watch Judy perform, there was a sense of a, a raw stillness, but also such beauty and such pain. And I think for people who may have been you know, kicked out of their homes or who may not be able to walk outside and tell people that they love who they love. Um, those feelings of, of feeling ignored, but then trying to find the beauty in that um, is is very healing. Um, yeah. And then I, I think on the flip side of like, you know, why don't straight people <laughs> get Judy or get Judy to the yeah. extent? Um, I think here we, we, we would be talking about, you know, straight men in particular, because I think there is a subset of uh, straight women who adore Judy and who did right. adore her, right? Like back in, in the 40s and the 50s, like she was, you know, the, the American girl next door and everyone wanted to sort of be her. And I think even still, there's a lot of women who, um, for similar reasons to white gay men, gravitate towards her. Um, but obviously then the question is like, you know, why do, why do straight men sometimes feel that they can be very dismissive of her? And I think the fact that she exists in a very feminine space, right. That I feel like mm-hmm. all of these, all of these movies and all of these concerts and sort of this fear that, uh, in cabarets that Judy was sort of circulating with, um, there was a way of looking down on them or, or thinking that this emotional labor and that putting herself out there and that sort of emotional outburst that feels so alluring to gay men uh, can sometimes feel kind of uh, shameful or distasteful um, to maybe other people who maybe not be so inclined to embrace such, such outbursts. So that, that I think that's what, when I, when I think of like what, what appeals, what, Judy's appeal to gay men is, you know, the adverse of why straight men don't uh, yeah. find her appealing. And I think it's sort of the, the two sides of the same coin, which is this celebration of fragile femininity that's still strong. Yeah. And that seems like that, that idea of, 
a sort of, um, you know, strength through and over adversity does feel like a, a through line in Judy Garland and also in, you know, a lot of other kind of pop culture artifacts that we think of as being kind of stereotypically gay, whether it's, you know, opera or, or musical theater or, or gospel music like that, that really runs through, you know, a lot of, a lot of those, um, and, and those are also all things that have been <laughs> sort of made fun of by, uh, by white straight men, right? Yeah. And I think they all share sort of that, that same DNA in that, you know, I think when we think of great pieces of art or what we've led to believe are great pieces of art or serious pieces of art, we do think of tragedy, but we think of tragedy in, in a very sort of restrained uh, mm-hmm. mode and it's sort of laconic, right? Even if you think of sort of like the golden age of television and all these like brooding male protagonists, uh, yeah. It's the antithesis of the sort of like outpouring of desire or of celebration of femininity that you see in musical theater or in opera or in in Judy. Um, so I think it's also a recalibration of like figuring out, you know, I think there's value in all these other things that have been normally been sort of cast aside uh, unnecessarily. So let's let's talk a little bit more specifically about the album itself. And I think this is kind of a good transition from what we were just talking about, because I feel like one of the things that I first heard this album in college and I've returned to it, you know, many times since then. But one of the things that like was very clear to me right away is that she's just trying so hard. Like she is really just like going to the mat on this album. Um, like, and if you, if you look at the track listing, I mean, you know, she's singing standards from the twenties and thirties. Like it's not a particularly imaginative set of songs, but then her and her band are just going full throttle on every single cut. Yeah, it's sort of like she was going to leave everything on the stage, right? And I, yeah. it, it it almost feels like she was trying to prove something, right? And I think even as I say that, I'm like, oh, this, I'm doing everything that everyone who writes about Judy does, which is like ascribe so much <laughs> sort of personal um, motivations to what she's doing. When I'm like, but she that's, just, there's a reason you do that, right? I yeah. mean, she, <laughs> something in the performance like makes you want to read into it. Like she's incur- like you write about that, that that sense of intimacy that she was able to engender, like. Maybe that's a good question. Like, what what about Judy makes you and everybody else want to psychoanalyze the way she sings "Stormy Weather" or whatever? I I mean, part of it is that the delivery is so entrancing. I think that's the only way to like. She really makes you believe that these songs that she's sort of like she's coming up with them at the moment that she's singing them. That she makes these lines feel new and raw. And that there's sort of like an unfilteredness about them whenever she's performing them, right? So that you get invested in these like stories and dramas that she's conjuring up in Stormy Weather or in The Man That Got Away, even though you know she's sung the song like thousands of times and <laughs> in, like she'd done the same concert like a hundred, like uh, several times before in that same tour, right? Like somewhere over the rainbow, she had probably performed more than any other song in the world by then. So like, you know, these are all rehearsed and a lot of these mannerisms and a lot of these things were rehearsed and were sort of um, codified by the time they got to Carnegie Hall. But there's something about her that really made them feel spontaneous. So you really got a sense of like, oh, I'm, I'm getting a kind of Judy that no one else has seen. Um, and that somehow the fact she was such a great performer that she almost lets you forget that she's performing. So it always feels like you're just getting Judy variations of Judy. Um, and I think that's why, that's why it encourages all to psychoanalyze her, but also because, and and, you know, I go a little bit into it in the book is that Judy was one of those public figures 
whose entire life was so chronicled and so recorded that was to that point unheard of right like she literally grew up in front of people like there were photographs and there were film reels and you know her lunches at the studio were recorded and like what she was eating and where she was going like there's an entire book that you can buy that shows you a day-by-day breakdown of judy's life because that's how minutely Whoa. recorded it was so i i think no one had in the 40s and 50s like really been thinking about celebrity this way because it was just the ability of photography and recordings and film um, were just slowly being able to make these people um, feel atta- feel attainable, right? That I could I could buy a fan magazine and learn what Judy was thinking about and which boy she was, uh, you know, having lunch with or having a milkshake with at the studio, even though all of it was orchestrated. Um, so the fact that you knew so much about her and that there were all these tell-alls and there was all this drama and there was all this gossip, like really that lurid curiosity just fed into this sense that you always knew who Judy was. And I think it, it's something that now tabloid culture has made so, has naturalized it and it makes it feel so commonplace so that we can follow, you know, Britney's Instagram account or we can follow someone's TikTok and we're getting sort of this unfiltered version and that, that just seems totally normal and what celebrities do. Um, but in the 40s and 50s, like Judy was sort of one of the first ones who was really grappling with what that meant and what it meant to have a public, public image um, and then, you know, a lurid past or a lurid romance or an extramarital affair or, you know, a tax evasion. Um, and that you always would have that in the back of your mind whenever she was performing. So you're always sort of filling in the gaps for yourself. Um, so it's it that's what fascinates me about the, the concert because it does feel like she was really just going to give it her all and that she's just doing it for the audience like you can feel that she's someone that feeds off of this energy and feeds off of the applause not in a sort of like narcissistic way but that like it really nurtures her and it it's really the place where she was in control and that she really can make you believe that she was the saddest person singing this song or she was the happiest person singing about the trolley song or and it's so alluring and it's so infectious and i i can never every time i hear and i've listened to the album like hundreds of times but like i'll find something new and i will always be surprised and it's because as much of it is has been rehearsed it feels so new and so fresh and it really does make you feel like you're right there right there with her that you could just reach out and touch her so that that idea of of this album making you feel right there i think kind of um leads to one of the things that's interesting about this album for me which is that it's existed in many different versions over the years i i have the two record uh you know vinyl set um but you've also extensively listened to the the sort of full concert version that includes all of her um, amazing banter about her wardrobe malfunctions and stuff and how sweaty she is. Um, what do you feel like having that extended version of the concert uh, makes you aware of or, or helps you imagine that is harder to have access to if you, if you are listening to that original, um, you know, two record set? Well, this was fascinating because like I, my, my initial encounter with the album was this extended version right so for the longest time i was like oh this is the this is the this is the album like everyone knows this version and it was only until a friend of mine lent me the vinyl and i listened to it and i was like wait where are all those 
these other anecdotes. Like I, how am I, where, where are they? Where, where are they missing? And of course, as soon as you start doing research, like it has existed in these other many forms. Um, but what's amazing about the that original vinyl is that in the jacket, right? Like it promises you that it's giving you the full concert and it's the marketing materials were basically premised on like, this is the concert you're going to, I'm going to make you feel like you're there. And even the cover is like the, is like the poster from that night, right? Or is, or is meant to look like the poster from that night, even if it isn't actually the poster from that night. Right. And then it's torn down, right? So that it's, it's like, it really wants to set, set you like you're right there. Um, But I think hearing these anecdotes and sort of like needing to contextualize them and sort of think about, you know, what does it mean for that closeness to take place? Or what does it mean for a, a live performance to be captured um, and to be edited, but then be presented as sort of unfiltered um, was something fascinating. I, t- to me, the anecdotes are sort of one of the things that are that I was most excited to write about. Because um, I think everyone knows the recordings, right? Everyone knows the songs and everyone knows sort of these versions because that's what we listen to. Um, but I was fascinated by these anecdotes and by these like long rambling moments of when you actually get to see how in control she is when she's singing and how mm-hmm. sort of out in of contrast. And, yeah. In contrast, like she's yeah. so loose and right. Like she's uh, sometimes it's incoherent and she has like different punchlines that she keeps rifling through, but never quite lands. And it's these anecdotes that sort of go around and around. And I, it's that contrast that made, the concert sort of and the recording sort of come alive to me. I was like, oh, this this is what people experience. Like they didn't just experience that beautiful sublime moment when she hits the high note or when she hit like sings their favorite song, but it was seeing that and the have that be followed by an anecdote about how she sweated so much after having her hair done that it all fell apart. Um, Because the other thing is like all these anecdotes are about how she continually fails to live up to a public image, right? It's about like they're her parents, all about failure. They're all about like failure. Yeah, and like failure to maintain. Yeah, like you said, her public image. Like that's so. It's so. They're so disarming and and great. Like totally entertaining, but also like what a contrast to these you know perfectly rehearsed songs. And that she can turn it on a dime, right? It, it's all these moments of like she finishes the song and you're beautiful and you're sort of like teary eyed because it's so so great, and then she starts off on this anecdote about Paris or she'll be rambling, rambling, rambling. And then the music will start. And then you, you can just almost see her like changing and that she's like snaps into it. And that is also fascinating to me that she was so easily able to shuttle between the two and that it was so ingrained that it was sort of like this like reflex um, that she can sort of like tap into, Um, which I think makes you appreciate that, the level of control and the level of grace that she brings to the songs um, when it's sort of surrounded by the, this messiness around her, which I think is also, you know, metaphor for sort of Judy herself. And it's like, she had these moments of sublimity and grace that were, they were always sort of punctured um, or surrounded by a sort of a very messy life and a messy personal life. Um, and these marriages that didn't work and, other marriages that didn't work and relationships and financial troubles and weight issues that I think you're constantly needing to try to think apart, right? That you would normally just, Oh, let's just focus on the beauty of Judy's songs or let's just focus on the talent of her dancing or let's just focus on her 
uh, you know, beautiful performances. And let's not think about the bad stuff. But I'm I'm fascinated by the fact that the concert, this longer version of the concert, um, really puts them in into into conversation and really forces you to be like, you know, loving Judy is loving both of those people. Is that messy person who's like, oh, I need to grab a uh, a drink of water, or I'm gonna go over here, or you know, it's trying to do these like jokey anecdotes. And then on a dime, we'll deliver sort of a disarming, beautiful performance. Because they, those, it's kind of, I don't know, I mean, I, I hate to use a $10 word, but like, it is kind of a dialectic, right? Where like, <laughs> for for those like monologues to be so charming, like the songs do kind of have to be really good. Like if it was all a mess, you wouldn't go to Carnegie <laughs> Hall to see it, right? Right. And there, and there are moments when there are messy moments in the music, right? I think like, right, I, yeah. I, the moment when she flubs that line and basically can't even remember what the line is, but says like, oh, what is the line? And she keeps singing. Um, it's a moment you're like, oh, she's cracked or she's about to crack. And you can, you can almost feel the audience gasping, being like, oh no. But then she sort of recovers. But there is, the, yeah, the, the, that dialectic makes either, both moments that much more charming and that much more valuable and heartwarming. Because she is a very good singer. Like this must be said. Like she is, <laughs> oh, yeah. is a great singer and a and a great like sort of actor as a singer. Like maybe not even maybe not a great actor as an actor, but like she really, you know, commits to communicating the emotional truth of these songs. She's a performer through and through, right? Like, you know, Mickey Rooney early on in her career told her, like, you know, whenever you're singing a song, you need to be like really like think of it as a performance. And you can see it, because every single especially in the numbers in the concert, like it really does feel like she's conjuring up a scene for you and that you're there and you know who this woman is and you know what she's going through and it's all in her voice and it's so modulated and it's so, she knows when, when to whisper, she knows when to take a breath, she knows when to pause, she knows when to amp up the energy. Like it's, it's a performance in the truest sense of the word. Um, so could you tell us a bit about, so this, this concert was recorded April 23rd, 1961, um, which is somewhat late in her career. Could you tell us a kind of a bit about where she was at this time and, and how this concert was perceived? Well, so the, the first thing to say about Judy is like after um, roughly 1950, when she leaves MGM uh, after many personal issues let's call them you know suicide attempts let's call her self-harming episodes um and when she became a liability for the studio basically uh what followed up until the end of her life were a series of uh comebacks right she was she was forever after that a comeback kid because she was always on (laughs) she was just about to come back so things like a star is born in 1954 um sort of was seen as sort of this comeback and sort of every time that she would do sort of a big production or a big concert tour, everyone was like, you know, Judy's about to come back. And it sort of never, never stuck for various reasons. So by 1961, she had sort of disappeared from Hollywood. Like she wasn't doing that many, that many films. And she was mostly a recording and concert artist. Uh, this one, this concert tour in particular was very different from what she'd been doing before because uh, before what she'd been doing were these sort of vaudeville-enhanced acts. So not only would she be doing a concert, but she had opening acts. Um, 
and she had uh, all these like big dance numbers and backup dancers, right? Like they, it was a performance. What made, you know, the Carnegie Hall uh, concert different is that it really was just her and the band. And it's sort of a stripped down a Judy version as sort of people could get at the time. Um, right. Stripped down for Judy Garland. Oh yeah. It, it was like, still a giant know, orchestra. A, yeah. At Carnegie 30 plus yeah, yeah, piece yeah, yeah. orchestra. But in the, like, right. it was just her and the microphone. Comparatively minimal. Yeah. 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 Just her and the microphone. Um, the, in, in my research, you come across a lot of different stories and myths and it was always, it, it, it was always difficult to sort of try and parse out like how much of it was real or how much was myth. So one of the things that surrounds the Carnegie Hall concert is the sense that Judy had become a liability for her recording um, label and that they were contractually obligated to release X amount of albums left with her so that she could fulfill her, her, her role and a concert was like the easiest way of doing it because they were having a hard time presumably getting her into a recording studio um, because she was, you know, dealing with uh, drug abuse uh, and sort of not being able to come into work at time on time, which was the same things that had been addled her, you know, her entire career uh, at MGM. Um, so the, as the myth goes, you know, this was sort of like the last hurrah of Capitol Records basically saying, you know, fine, we'll record the concert because it's easy. We can just do it right there and then we can just release it. Um, but, you know, in, in my research, I found that like, you know, she had been, go- she, there was ample, there were ample recordings that they could have pulled from if they really just wanted to release another album. So the sense that they really were chasing after something that was memorable or something that was, you know, that would really capture Judy in her essence um, was probably just as much of a driver as the sort of the cost benefit analysis of what it meant to record a live performance rather than bring her into the studio. Um, and it became a phenomenon. Like it became uh, the highest selling, you know, two disc record. It won uh, best album at the Grammys the following year, making Judy the first female performer to win that, um, to win that award. Uh, it, you know, spent, you know, weeks and weeks on end on the number one in the billboard charts. Uh, this was sort of a, a flashpoint, sort of like water cooler zeitgeist album for 1961 and 1962. Um, and I think it speaks to the fact that everyone was just very ready to fall in love with Judy all over again, as they had been doing sort of continually for the past decade mm-hmm. uh, and sort of being reminded that she was, a performer that you couldn't like whose talent you couldn't deny. And again, you really can't listen to this album and not come away thinking like she's, she's one of the best ever, right? Like that's sort of undeniable. Um, so in a way this was sort of like a big comeback. And then, you know, as, as happened over and over again, like that, that never quite materialized into letting her have some sort of continued, um, you know, financial solvency, and she was always scrounging up, needing to scrounge up money. Um, so I think, in in my view, this is sort of this her last hurrah, and what happens in the next sort of six to seven years is sort of a as Judy the film with Renee Zellweger sort of points out, sort of the the dimming of her star, because um, she'll never be able to, or she was never able to sort of recapture what Carnegie Hall sort of offered. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it strikes me that this narrative of Judy as a failure is just so tenacious. Like, it's we really want that to be true. I mean, it sort of reminds me of Orson Welles in a way that she had such fantastic early success that everybody, you know, for the rest of her career kept saying, well, she'll never be what she once was. But actually, when you look back at her career, what it seems to be more than anything else is like a very consistent record of excellent work. Yes. And I think it, it was just it was the intermittency that made it look like a failure, right? That 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 she could never then capitalize on it, um, never because of her own fault, and never because of lack lack of talent. I think you know here is where bad management, uh, bad financial decisions, bad personal decisions, bad marriages um, sort of came into play. But yeah, if, if the the story of, of Judy is a is continued success and continued failure. And sort of it's a cyclical thing that she was always already coming back. Yeah, that's great. Um, can I ask you what, what are some of your favorite tracks on the record and, and what do you like about her interpretations of those songs? I mean, this changes almost daily and this would change daily whenever I was working on it. Um, <laughs> so it's just some, for today though. <laughs> so, so, so for today, well, it's, it's funny cause I've been revisiting the album, right? Like I, I, I wrote the, the book last year um, and already 2020 feels like a lifetime, <laughs> like a lifetime away from when I actually wrote this. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've been revisiting the album in a different light. So last year I was really drawn to those like happy peppy moments. Like I love, uh, when you're smiling, because I think it's mm-hmm. such a perfect, whenever I needed to pick me up last year, I could put on that song and it would make me smile. What I've been gravitating to lately, unsurprisingly, is these like more dramatic, broody ballads. So something like Do It Again or The Man That Got Away, where you really feel her hurt and a sort of a blueness to her to her delivery, because I find comfort but also because i'm a sucker for you know beautiful heartbreak heartbreaking ballads um and i think she does that very well and i think one of the things that the recording does is really capture how how much could do with very little so i think like sometimes when we think of judy we think of these like expressive moments so like those the big belters or we think of those like big smiling moments or these like big musical numbers with um you know from from her movies i'm always more drawn to those you know pared down piano only the piano only section or the jazz section that really have her just modulate her voice to the point where sometimes it feels like it's just a whisper but there's such control in her voice that her diction is perfect and you can really capture, um, you know, that sadness. Um, and that she's just as powerful and as luring in those moments as when she's like really letting loose and sort of hitting that high note at the end. Um, so that's what I've been drawn to lately, which I know has everything to do with my own mental state and the state of the world. Sure. And <laughs> um, but I think yeah. that's the other thing about the album. Like it has so many layers and so many colors. Like you really could be picking, you know, if you really want to be heartbroken, if you really want to be depressed, if you really want to be happy, if you want to be nostalgic, right? Even something like Somewhere Over the Rainbow. You can listen to that song over and over it's again. It's a perfect, it's an absolutely perfect song. And yeah, she she kills it and it's she, her voice breaks and 
again, it's like, you know, she's sung this so many times and she can And still... she sings it twice during the concert, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, but yeah. How about you? What's your, what, do you have a favorite? Mm, I think I like, um, the one that I always like put on when I'm like, this is an amazing album and this is, this is the proof is, um, come rain or come shine just because the drummer is just beating the crap out of those bongos or whatever they are. And it's just an insane sound. Like it's like, she's singing, you know, a very good, very impassioned, but then the drums are just like, like, it's like, I don't know. It's like something out of a metal record or something. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I'm always sort of so concerned for her because it feels like a train. Like it just like, yeah. it, and you're like, how is she keeping up? How is she keeping up? And she somehow does it and sort of like is able to sort of like weather that storm and, yeah, those drums are are amazing. Yeah, like just totally over the top. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, I, I agree with you that it is it's it's an album that I probably rarely listen to all the way through, but there are definitely certain selections that I that I return to a lot. Um, and then it also feels like it would be hard to imagine an album like this being as successful as it was even two years later. Like, or you know, like that this is very much like the culmination of a whole tradition of kind of the American popular song. Uh, And it feels very pre like sort of classic sixties. Right. Yeah. And I think I, I hadn't noticed this until I sort of like sat down. I'm a very uh, sort of organized person. So I had a spreadsheet with all the songs and all of the like histories and when they were first performed. And it was only when I did that, that I started to realize like, Oh yeah, most of the songs were written in the 20s or in the 30s, a handful in the 40s. I think there's only two or three that were written in the 50s. So it by 1961, this was already a very outdated um, sort of program to be to be singing. But I think it spoke to, as you say, the sort of like the height of the American bandstand uh, sort of tradition and that, that the Judy was a de facto sort of like poster girl for it that so many of these she had been singing for for years if not decades um but the concert in, in a way was a looking back right a looking back at maybe simpler times maybe at greater times um but it was it, it does feel like a last gasp before the 60s before you know the beatles before sort of rock and roll like there is a sense of like this is um capturing a moment that is already about to disappear. And I think that's also what makes it sort of a, a fascinating document of American culture. Um, Cause yeah, I don't, I don't see this in 1963 sort of hitting the zeitgeist in the same yeah. way um, that I think it's very much a, a, a projection backwards. And it's sort of a, as I write in the book, it's sort of a, an exercise in nostalgia, um, which I think Judy embodies and, continues to embody the sense that she was always going to transport us back, whether it was back to a home in Kansas, whether it was back to a trolley, whether it was back to, you know, simpler times uh, of Technicolor or simpler times when she was a young girl or simpler times, even in the more problematic songs to an old South that was already disappearing in the imaginary of the American, uh, in the American imaginary, like the song, the, the concert is very, it's a backward glance. Um, and I think that's, that's also what makes it, uh, 
so so thrilling, and it was so thrilling to think about it in 2019. You know, what what would it mean to be thinking about this, um, and how how do we read it differently? And I feel like even right now, if I were to write this book again, I feel like it would look very different in 2020 already. Even though, again, not even 12 months have passed since I submitted the manuscript. Like, there's already pieces yeah. that I wish I could or would have gone more in depth into because I think they're they're fertile ground for a lot of like fascinating conversations that we're having um, currently about, you know, pop culture. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I have been really loving about this album in kind of returning to it in preparation for this interview is just like how effectively it captures the experience of being together in a room with a bunch of other people witnessing somebody do something live. <laughs> like the fact that it's, I mean, I, you know, I don't know if, if this album would be, nearly as beloved if it was a studio album like it's and and especially for judy garland for somebody whose fans are such an important part of like why people love her uh you know you you sort of love judy to be part of the group of people who loves judy the fact that it's a live album feels absolutely essential oh yeah and these like minutes on end like what i imagine were actually standing ovations and like the the applause goes on and on and on yeah. and it's like it really adds to that both that that sense of like you're being there but yeah it sort of gives you a tangible sense of how that audience felt about her right so they're like these were people who loved her and not only loved her but wanted her to feel loved right so those applauses those cheers those claps um really give sort of a a sense of that group, right? And that, that sense of an audience that I think a lot of us are yearning for, right? Like <laughs> so many of us yeah. are like, I, I miss being really in an uncomfortable seat for long as time, listening to my favorite performer in front of me that I can't really see because the person in front of me has a phone in front of them, then they record, right? Like all these things that we sort of associate with live theater or like performances that I start to miss, um, I think the the album does a great job of of capturing the all the positive stuff and all the the sense of community that uh, an experience like that feels right. Like I know I can't even imagine what it must have felt like to be like I was there. Right? Like what would it what would it do to you like to have been in Carnegie Hall in you know April nineteen sixty one? Like knowing that you were witnessing history and that you know we're still talking to this day and you can be heard on the album like. It's sort of, mm-hmm. it, it's surreal to me. And and people knew like right away that it had <laughs> right. been really special. Like this is not just retrospective. They, it, it was the kind of thing that people knew, you know, on April 22nd, that having been there on April 21st was a big deal, right? Oh, yeah. Um, you also talk a lot in the book about kind of the afterlives of this album. And you, you talk about how it, you know, almost immediately inspired drag recreations. And there's even another, there's a, there's a, a, a drag album that is recorded at Carnegie Hall, right? That includes selections from this show. Yeah. And from Barbara's. Um, yeah. Yeah. Cause I, th- I think, and this is, this is one of the things that I love about you know, sort of gay culture. And this is why I love studying it and thinking about it is um, that one of the ways we keep culture alive is by, borrowing and recreating it and reshaping it and i think a lot of judy's presence can still be felt were because of these drag performers and uh you know people who really wanted to keep judy alive in a way right so it 
even if even before we get to sort of Rufus Wainwright recreating the concert in 2006, um, you have, you know, decades of people who had been doing her numbers, who had been doing entire shows, who had been sort of borrowing these live um, live tracks to do to do drag performances and mimicking her and never in a way that felt like they were diminishing or making fun of her. Like, I think it really comes from a place of, of love um, and a place of wanting to continue her legacy. Um, so yeah, like in the, but a couple of years after she passed, you know, a, a drag impersonator was in the tonight, was in the tonight show, I think, um, you know, dressed up as Judy, you know, performing, uh, and there's all these, like, even in Vegas, I mean, not right now, but because everything is closed, but, you know, there were, mm-hmm. there are still drag impersonators, you know, in New York, in Vegas, who in 2020, before everything got shut down, were still doing Judy shows. And I think that that speaks to the, um, her legacy, but also the way that she's been a conduit for other people to, uh, create a sense of artistry and queer artistry and sort of this ability that they, she lets them have sort of a license to be bigger than themselves and allows them to tap into a version of themselves that they've always wanted to be, or have always wanted to sort of project. Yeah. I feel like we've talked a lot about the sort of like um, the aspects of Judy's, you know, performance that makes her really attractive for the gay community and for drag impersonation. But I mean, part of it also is just that she, you know, never consciously distanced herself from her gay fans. And right. right? I mean, as opposed to, you know, Donna Summer or any other number of people who have been sort of gay icons, but then have have tried to run away from that. She really embraced that aspect of her of her uh, fan base. Yeah. And also, I think, you know, the fact that, you know, she died a couple of days before Stonewall. Right. I think in, Those two in, events are linked in the popular consciousness, whether they they had any causal relationship at the time or not, right? Exactly. And I think it's sort of, but, but, but I, I even think about the fact that we lost Judy when she was so young. Like, mm-hmm. I do wonder what would have happened had she, you know, would she have been one of these people like Prince, for example, or like uh, Little Richard, who then like moves away from her queer fans or moves away. But we never had to have those conversations and we never had to sort of imagine or witness uh, what a late in her life Judy would have done. And so it's also easier to sort of keep her in this like moment in time where she was so loving and she was right. Like she had gay fans that she would talk to on the phone and that she would know, you know, by heart and like really like get to know, you know, in the, in the film Judy, there's sort of like a fictionalized version of that, but this was something that Judy did. Like she really did, connect with her gay fans and sort of gave them license to be themselves and like that there was no big deal to her and i feel like that in the 1950s and 60s was you know radical and revolutionary and so so of course like we we gravitate to that and i think that it's it's a lovely way of thinking about um, why she's also endured and you all you also devote a chapter to the rufus wainwright album that you mentioned a bit ago uh, where Rufus Wainwright sings, is it is it exactly song for song the 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 album or what is it? it's it's a recreation of of the of that night but um you know with some changes right so he has the same band I mean not obviously the same band but like the same band member like band the number of band this yeah yeah 
Um, I can't even speak today. So, but for all intents and purposes, it was the same concert. It has the same order. It's the same arrangements as best as he could find them. Um, so he worked with um, a musical director that looked into the archives to find, you know, uh, more Lindsay's original orchestrations. Uh, some songs are changed in key, obviously, to allow for his sort of deeper um voice and then but for all intents and purposes it's the same concert and even right that there's a moment where he says okay i'm gonna speak now because this is when judy speaks in the album like it's very clearly Mm -hmm. uh, a shot by shot in a way remake um although he also towards the end would always do get happy which of course judy never did in in the current in the carnegie hall concert um but it was intended to be very much a a recreation and sort of a, a way of sort of like conjuring up, you know, the ghost of Judy because it was in Carnegie Hall uh, and Lorna Luft joined him for uh, a song. So it was very much, um, you know, it was described at the time as sort of like a gay seance, <laughs> sort of really wanting yeah. to sort of capture her spirit. Um, even though, yeah, but but yeah, for, for all intents and purposes, it's the same concert, it's the same track listing, and it's the same orchestrations as best as you could find them. But I, I I gather that you didn't like Rufus Wainwright's version as much as as Judy's, and you sort of believe that he was like, uh, you know, giving himself a bit too much credit for how good of a job he did recreating this concert, right? I I mean, I think Rufus. <laughs> this was sort of it was hard to sort of toe the line because I'm like there's no way any other version of this album was going to be better than Judy's. Like, this is just right. like fact. Um, what Rufus does is fascinating to me. Yeah. Um, What's fascinating think, about it? And I think part of it is that is this trying to wrestle Judy into a gay, illegible gay culture in the 21st century. Right. So it's like, if Judy was a diva and that's how gay men sort of channeled her, what does it mean to have that be instantiated in an openly gay man. So that as a concept is fascinating to me. So what happens when these songs that Judy sang and that gay men sang with her in the 1960s. And so in that sense, where these like tr- identification moment that was happening, what happens when that is collapsed, right? So what happens when Rufus can openly sing about men um, in the same venue and using the same songs? Um, but I think it's also fascinating that he was that he remains so proud of it, um, and that there is there was a sense of a bravado and a sort of like a sense of uh, obvious not narcissism, but it's sort of like a pride about him that he said, you know, sometimes I sounded better than her, and sometimes I did this better. And again, these are his quotes because um, mm-hmm. I think that adds to the gayness of it all, this the boldness and the sort of uh, shamelessness that I think Judy would also have enjoyed because that's like she would always that's what she would want to engender the sense that you could really just go out there and you could really just own it um so to me it works more it works better as a concept than as a than the the numbers and the, the songs itself um and i think it's because they're two very different performers and they come from very different lineages so i think you know it's very different to hear judy who had sung the songs, these songs for decades to, you know, Rufus who came from this like New York cabaret, queer sort of underground um, sort of pop world. 
um, and who learned a lot of these songs for the concert. Like you can tell that these are not songs that he knows like the back of his hand in the way that Judy did. Um, but it's, a, I think it's admirable. And I still, there, the other thing is like, I, the, the song that I enjoy the most is the one that his sister sings. <laughs> so it also feels mm-hmm. like a backhanded compliment to be like, I love this one song that you're not in. But I think it's because it's the one moment in the album where you can see it stops being an impersonation of Judy and it's something else, right? It's someone like re like tapping into Judy's energy without wanting to be Judy. And I think that's something that Rufus always skirts in all of, and in some songs he's very successful at channeling Judy and at others he's impersonating her and at others he's like conjuring her, but it never, you're always trying to figure out what, what it is he's doing. And I think in that first concert in 2006, he wasn't as clear. He revisited it again in 2016 um, and he's even said that like, you know, at that time I had a clearer sense of what I was trying to do. And at that point it was like a Rufus Wainwright concert with this track listing rather than we're going to do Judy. Yeah. Yeah. That idea of, of trying to, yeah, that distinction between like doing a Rufus Wainwright concert with these songs versus doing the Judy Garland concert. Like, I, I don't know. I can't quite articulate what that difference is, but it feels like a really big difference, right? Yes. Yeah. And I think, I feel like he struggled with it. And even in interviews at times, he was like, I don't want, I I don't want to be doing Judy, right? So he didn't want to be dressed like Judy. He wanted to be dressed like a fashionable debonair Rufus, right? So he's wearing Mm -hmm. this like beautiful um, suits, although towards the end, um, and he would always, he would also do this in these, in his other concert tours, whenever he would do Get Happy, he would actually be wearing, you know, the fedora and the shirt and the stockings and the heels and the red lip. So I think he is fascinated with this, like, how can I step in her shoes while also being Rufus and pay homage, but also be myself? But it's, it, but it's a hard space to inhabit. And it's a hard space to inhabit in one song, let alone in a concert that's so iconic and that so many of us know. Like, we know when she takes a breath and we know when she, you know, stops and we know when she, you know, goes full throttle and we know when she, like, demures because... That's what we do. We obsess about it. <laughs> um, yeah. So it was always an insurmountable and a Herculean sort of proposition to begin with. So the fact that it was as successful as it is um, says a lot about Rufus and about his talent. But I think it was always going to be a, a, a failure, quote unquote, because uh, it was never going to live up to Judy. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's it's certainly a a very, yeah, it's a very ambitious, like to, you know, try to recreate an album that is like both iconic and great is is a tall order. Yeah. Um, Finally, could you tell us a bit about kind of what other projects you're working on, what you might have kind of coming down the pike? Uh, Yeah. So currently, so I'm trying to think of what I can talk about, but uh, so I'm, I'm a co-author of a middle grade graphic novel called The Cardboard Kingdom um, that I wrote with a couple of other writers and an illustrator called Chad Sell. Um, and that came out in 2018. And we're currently working on the sequel um, that's going to be coming out next uh, year. So it feels it always feels odd to think uh, about that when I'm thinking about Judy, because they feel like mm-hmm. worlds apart, because one is the middle grade graphic novel for kids. And this is sort of like a um, music cultural criticism. 
Um, but I'm also working on uh, a collection of essays on queer masculinity um, that I'm hoping to be shopping around and hopefully publishing in the next couple of years. Um, I, again, I'm, I'm fascinated by sort of queer culture and sort of what I'm currently obsessed with is how femininity and masculinity are constantly in conversation in queer bodies. Um, so thinking what does it mean to obsess or lust over, you know, very masculine bodies while trying to uh, be wary of, for example, toxic masculinity. So what does it mean to love mm -hmm. characters that embody that, but also feeling you know, repulsed by what they stand for in real life? Or what does it mean to be thinking uh, about red carpets and someone like Billy Porter, who's really embracing sort of a gender queer um, style of queer masculinity or queer femininity? So that's sort of where my, my mind is at. And I'm, I have a couple of essays around that. And sort of that's, that's sort of the next project. Cool. That sounds very interesting. I think so. Well, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm now hoping that other people do. <laughs> <laughs> that's always the hope, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, Manuel Betancourt, thanks so much for being on the program. Uh, once again, the book is Judy at Carnegie Hall out from Bloomsbury. Uh, and, you know, this is a, a great book to read if you're a, a fan of Judy or of the kind of questions about fandom that are raised by the book. Or you know a, a great a great gift item for the uh, the the Judy fan in your life as well. Yeah, that's the hope. If, if you're a novice or if you're an expert, um, and I've already gotten notes from both of those camps of people. <laughs> um, yeah did did anybody have like did you get, hear from any like really intense Judy fans who had who had uh, you know criticism or 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 wanted to point out anything? Uh, yes. First of all, they what several people have already pointed out that there's a glaring, horrible typo that I will have to live with for the rest of my life. Because oh, no. uh, Yip Harburg, one of the writers of Somewhere Over the Rainbow, uh, is written as Yip Hamburg in the book uh, a couple yeah, of times. I don't know how you're going to live that down. <laughs> and it's like of all the names that I had to get wrong, and of all right. the things, and it's it's like I. I owned up to it. And it's like, it's one of these moments, like the first time someone brought it up to me, I was like, Oh my God, this is a horrible book. Like, Oh my God, what am I going to do? But yeah. Pulp every copy. Yeah. Yeah. So, but if anyone is listening, it, it's going to be changed for the upcoming, for future Kindle editions. And if it gets a reprint, it will be changed. Um, but it has been fascinating to hear about other people who have much more specific <laughs> sort of things about like what Judy was wearing um that apparently i got it that what she what i say she's wearing is what she was wearing when she came back from intermission as opposed to when she was on at the beginning and this was from someone who was actually there not at the carnegie hall concert but at another concert um so that was fascinating to me but it's also been fascinating to be approached by fans who are like nitpicking because that's basically what the book is about <laughs> right <laughs> so i'm yeah, like, it's like i am I'm obsessed with people who are obsessed with Judy. So your obsession about like nitpicking about my own right. thing is like instantiating what I'm interested in. Um, yeah. Your criticism but, only makes me stronger. Yeah. And I, and I think the, the other thing I will say is like all of these criticisms and all of these like typos have been presented with such generosity and never sort of um, any malice. Like everyone's like, Hey, by the way, did you know that? Um, yeah. so I think it also speaks to the type of Judy fan, um, that I hope sees themselves 
represented. But I also know that Judy's fans run the gamut. Um, and so I'm, I'm curious to hear the more they encounter the book and the more they, they start reading it or start finding it and discovering it, um, hearing from all these different people um, and what they think of the book. Because I feel Judy fans can be very protective of her. And in a way, this is not a book about Judy, but it is. Cause yeah. So um, it's, well, it, I knew that entering the conversation on, was already, yeah. <laughs> was already going to be tricky, but I'm very happy that, that it can, it can live on its own. And yeah. I'm going to go on the record saying, I don't think you have anything to worry about. And, and I think this <laughs> book is such a clear labor of love, both for Judy and for her fans. So uh, you know, if, if, if anybody has any comments, they can take it up with me. Okay. I will, I will refer them to you. <laughs> All right. Thanks. Take care, Manuel. No, and thank you for having me. 